0: Well, we are continuing in our um, teaching through the book of Revelation. Uh, I don't know why we decided to preach through Revelation, but we are. Um, last, th- last week we went through chapter 12, um, and chapter 12 really showed us the, uh, the true story of the world. The abbreviated Reader's Digest version of the spiritual story of the world. Um, In fact, the first six verses kind of really nutshelled it all for us. Um, We essentially learned in those first six verses that the the, the big story is about how the dragon, um, a.k.a. Satan, the serpent, the devil, he has the single-minded focus of removing Jesus from the big story. He wants to eliminate the Son of God, and he wants to thwart God's redemptive plan for mankind. And if the devil can't accomplish that, which he couldn't, and he still can't. Then the dragon's going to work to destroy the church and bring down as many Christ followers as possible, and then everybody else. So that's, that, that kind of initiated this age-old spiritual battle, which God allows to go on for a predetermined period of time. Um, we believe that's the metaphoric 1,260 days. It's not a literal period of time. It's a reference to the fact that there is a beginning and an end to it. So God's going to allow this to go on for this 1,260 days, but not one day longer. So then the rest of chapter 12 goes on to provide more detail, more background as, as to how Satan became God's adversaries. There there is a war in heaven. There was an attempted coup. Satan lost and was kicked out of heaven, um, which also explains why he is so furious. That's one of the use, words that's used to describe him. And it explains why, since he can't defeat God, he can't eliminate Jesus, he's determined to attack the followers of Christ the church and we're told that he has a couple of key strategies that he uses in order to draw people away from God especially the so-called, so-called Christians, those who claim to have faith but it really is nothing more than faith whatever that means and so his two main strategies are accusations and deceit He's going to lead people away from truth and into error through accusations and deceit. And it turns out the serpent is really good at his job. He's had a while to practice. He's learned things. I saw a headline just this week that said, Fewer than half of evangelicals believe the Bible is literally true. Fewer than half. 40% of born-again evangelicals believe the Bible is the actual word of God. Over 50% reject a number of biblical teachings and principles, including the existence of the Holy Spirit. And a strong majority of evangelicals believe that all religious faiths are of equal value, that the acts of goodness can earn heaven, that absolute truth does not exist, and that having faith matters more than the object of faith. So here, I think we're seeing the long-term effect of Accusation and deceit. We're people who call themselves believers even as they disbelieve the central tenets of the faith. And what's more, I think we need to pay attention to just how sly deceit can be here so that so-called believers can boldly declare that faith is important to them although it doesn't really matter what your faith is in. So what's happened is we've made faith its own idol. As long as we have faith, it doesn't really matter what it's in. So, do we believe that the devil roams about as a roaring lion seeking to destroy and deceive people? We absolutely do. So what we see here, I think, in this contemporary headline fully supports what we read here in this ancient book. The devil's waging war against the woman and her offspring. That's the picture that was presented last week. That is the church. The devil wages war against the church and its people. So the effective tools of the dragon, Satan, the devil, whatever we call him, include deceit and accusations. And now we get into chapter 13, and we learn that he also has helpers to help him in this project. That's where this ongoing story takes us next, chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now, I'll just warn you now that we're going to deal with the the big ideas through this chapter. We want to maintain uh, our vision, our view of what this story is, how this story progresses. So there are about 14,000 things we could deal with just in this section right here. We're just going to hit a couple of the highlights. Um, Otherwise, we're we're getting into deconstructing all of the other ideals and interpretations. And we just want to kind of focus on what we're being shown here. So what we are being told is there is a new character now that's introduced to our story. It's the beast from the sea. And and in Scripture, the sea often represents evil. Sea monsters represent evil. The Old Testament refers to the sea as the home of Leviathan. So it, it is symbolically this chaotic area of threat and rebellion. And so fittingly, it's the home of this beast. We're told that the beast has ten horns, seven heads, with ten diadems or crowns on his horns and blasphemous names written on its head. Now, if you remember, this is strikingly similar to the description we had of the dragon in in the last chapter, chapter 12. Both have seven heads, both have ten horns, but the dragon had seven crowns, while the beast has ten crowns on his horns. So they're very, very similar. But then John goes on to give us this disturbing description of the rest of the beast. He said, it's like a leopard, but with feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion, and this is a very unusual creature to come out of the ocean. And as unusual and as, as, as specific as this description of the beast is, it is unusual and it is weird, but it's not entirely unprecedented. We go back to the book of Daniel, who had a vision while he was in Babylon. Daniel's vision included four different beasts, all of whom came out of the sea. One was a lion, one was a bear, one was a leopard, and the fourth beast was different from the others, he said. He did not describe that fourth beast in terms of any kind of animal, but it had ten horns. Now, in Daniel's vision, the, the, the four beasts symbolized four different kingdoms that would come to exert power and influence over the people of God. Evil kings and evil kingdoms who would rule by means of conquest and oppression. It's widely believed that in Daniel's vision, actually, the fourth beast um, was associated with the future power of Rome. And that may be the case in Revelation here. It may not be. But at the time of John's vision and at the time of John's writing, Rome was the most controlling and most oppressive kingdom on earth. So it may well have applied. But it may continue to apply to other kingdoms over time. Which kind of supports our approach to this, is that these kinds of events... The, the, the cycles of judgment we've gone through, the seals and the trumpets, and we'll, we'll look at the bulls next, they're not just strictly limited to a pre-rapture period of time. These have been occurring repeatedly throughout time. Rome may have been in mind in both visions, but the descriptions of power and, and the reach of the empire may well apply to any number of kingdoms or countries over time. In fact, I think we've seen the likelihood of other kingdoms increase since the time of Jesus' ascension, as as countries have, powers have risen and fallen. So John's vision of a single beast seems to be a conglomerate. It's an amalgamation of the four beasts from Daniel, so that the power and the oppression of countries or kingdoms will continue throughout time. Now, we discussed last week that that heads typically represent wisdom. Uh, Horns typically represent power. Most often an oppressive, authoritarian kind of power. And crowns or diadems represent authority. And then we see here, tacked on the end of John's description, it says the beast has blasphemous names written on its heads. And I think this is just an obvious visual counterfeit to what we find in Revelation 19.16. We're told that the conquering Jesus returns, and he has a name written on his thigh which says, King of kings and Lord of lords. So here we have a counterfeit Jesus who has blasphemous names written on his head. It's, it's mocking. It's mimicking. So Jesus' names say King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and this beast is like a petulant fifth grader that says, Oh, huh. I got names too. So what we're being given here in this vision, it, it, it's a vision of oppressive and powerful governments with far-reaching authority and they're in the service of, or they're being used by, they're being manipulated and controlled by the sea beast. Now, of course, there are any number of interpretations we can get into, any number of details about this. You know, we, we can debate whether the ten crowns denotes ten different countries that rise and fall, and there's a succession of power, or whether it's a, it's a cabal, it's these ten different countries all working together. Lots of people spend lots of time trying to figure out who these ten people are not sure it matters all that much. I tend to think that since the numbers 7 and 10 represent wholeness or completeness in scripture, that these numbers really just refer to this period of time in which any and all oppressive rulers will reign. There will be a time where kingdoms behave in this fashion. We're going to see an abuse of power until the fullness of time from God's perspective. We're not going to waste a lot of time in speculation on this. I think it detracts from the big story. We're being told that the dragon gave his power, gave his throne, gave his authority to this beast. And this power is significant, which means that the kingdoms, the governments, will be powerful and oppressive. But then the description says that one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. And the wounded healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, in a more literal word-for-word translation here, it, the, the text might say something like, the the head of the beast appeared as slain to death. And that verbiage sounds familiar. It had this wound that seemed to be life-ending, but wasn't. It miraculously recovered, but the language is important, as, as slain to death. You remember back in chapter 4, where... The, John's being told that the lion is worthy, and then a lamb appears, and the lamb appeared as slain to death. So I think this is an intentional attempt to deceive. The beast wants to present a counterfeit to Christ. He wants to present a counterfeit to the Messiah, and so he mimics or he mocks this appearance. So between the power given by the dragon the authority that it's allowed, and this miraculous recovery from a mortal wound, the beast from the sea is and was and will continue to be worshipped, which in turn meant that the dragon is worshipped because that's where the authority and power comes from. The purpose of this beast, the purpose of the governments, is to direct worship to the dragon. And it says it's effective. The people are so enamored, they're so amazed that they say, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? this cry of adoration for the beast actually mimics Psalm 113 5 which says who is like the Lord our God now all of this should start to sound familiar when we started laying out our our overview for Revelation way back in January one of the early handouts we gave you was a chart that showed how Satan in his battle against the one true triune God Satan's going to create a a copycat version, a counterfeit trinity. So Satan likes to be in the role of God, but it's a little g, fake God. And now the sea beast is the Jesus-type character, his counterfeit equivalent. Here's kind of how this will lay out. So for every person of the Holy Trinity, there is an unequal but opposite an unholy person of the counterfeit trinity so with the sea beast who who many have come to refer to as the antichrist even though that name is never used in the book of revelation the sea beast is the counterfeit version of Jesus and we see how Satan tries to mock or counterfeit to lead people astray they're both in the image of their father They both receive authority from their father. They're both mortally wounded. They're both resurrected, possibly, kind of. And they both direct worship to their father. And this tactic of deception is very, very successful, evidenced by the fact that people say, Who is like the beast? He's worthy of worship. So the dragon's very effective at getting, directing worship away from God and towards himself. But wait, there's more. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now there's about 18,000 things in here we could talk about. But first we're given a general description of the appearance of the beast in that last section, and now we're given more specifics as to its behaviors and its methodology. And the first thing we learn is from the mouth comes haughty and blasphemous words. And you remember last week in chapter 12 that the dragon, we were told, had a river that came forth, forth from its mouth and swallowed up people. And the river denoted false teaching. We see the same thing here. The sea beast will, will open its mouth and it will be honest about its disdain for God. Haughty is, is arrogant. It's high-minded. Um, it might sound wise, But it isn't. And the speech coming from from the, the, the sea beast is blasphemous. It's speech opposed to God. It's derogatory. And it's even emphasized with, it utters blasphemies against God, but it also blasphemes his name. It blasphemes his dwelling. I mean, anything, every attribute about God, this thing attacks. Even his dwelling. Those who dwell in heaven. So, God, Jesus, the Spirit, the angels, elders, saints, the church—we are all the subject of this disdain and hatred. Now, this is opposed to the image of Jesus, who we're, we're told in Revelation 19 comes with the sword coming from His mouth. He's judging the nations. The sword is often an image of truth, so Jesus comes forth with truth coming out of His mouth. The sea beast has lies and accusations and deceit and he's allowed to do this for 42 months again not a literal number or period of time in our view but representative of a length of time so this blasphemous reign of remember we're talking about political governmental power here this blasphemous reign of power will not last a long time at least from God's perspective it lasts a whole lot longer than we wanted to from our perspective But even though it won't be a long time in God's view, it is going to be painful, and it's going to be pervasive. The beast is going to be allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, it says. Now, unfortunately for us, the the followers of Christ, you know, we're we're the, the woman in labor, mentioned in the last chapter, waiting for Jesus to return. This conquering likely means persecution and even martyrdom. We may be killed. So the scope of oppression is extensive. The beast is going to attack, and he's going to seek to conquer, and this is very important, every tribe, people, language, and nation. That's very intentional language. This goes back to Revelation 5-9, where the Lamb receives the scroll... And once he has received the scroll, it says, everyone in heaven started singing a song. And the song was Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you made them into a kingdom and priest to our God. So we're being told here the target of the beast's attack are the very same people who are committed followers of God and his Christ. That's who he's going after us. This is not a coincidence. We're the subject of his attack. We saw this from last week. It's the same story. The dragon could not defeat Jesus, so now he's focused on the church through means of the state. Political power, evil and oppressive governments. And again, this tactic is very successful. Even as the beast attacks the church and the body of believers, the unbelieving world, always referred to or often referred to in Revelation as the earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, The earth dwellers rejoice over the persecution of the church. That's exactly what was described with the story of the two witnesses. The two witnesses, the church, they thought was wiped out and they exchanged presents. This is a joyous day. So now they're worshiping the beast who brings about this persecution and evil is celebrated, evil is venerated and righteousness is persecuted. But then there's a hint here of something more to come. Here's a a hope for us to hang on to. The earth dwellers will worship the beast. It says they'll rejoice over the power of the beast and over over how the righteous have have ultimately been put in their place. But the earth dwellers are referred to as those whose name has not been written in the book of life. So here's the paradox. The righteous, the church, are going to be attacked and persecuted and will appear to have been wiped out. And believers... If we're still alive when when all this happens, we may be dead. We may be heavily persecuted or marginalized. The church will appear as though it's slain to death, but the dragon cannot undo what Jesus has done. Because he's a fake, and he's a fraud, and he's a phony. and, And for those who are true followers of the true Christ, their names appear in the book of life. And so death in this world, if it comes to us, I mean, it's sad and upsetting for those who remain. But death removes us from this mortal life of of joy and love and pain and sickness and persecution, and it delivers us to our eternal home. So if our name is recorded in the book of life because we've been saved from our sin by receiving the sacrifice offered by Jesus, we don't need to long for death, but we don't need to fear it. Now, this whole idea of this oppressive, evil, Government. I think believers in the West have long labored um, trying to understand how this could come to pass, how, how easily a government can be turned from good to something else, how good people can, can go along with something that seems so obviously bad. This has been kind of outside the realm of our experience, how, how governmental power can lead to worship of the government. So we've kind of decided, all, all these modern interpreters of the book We've decided that this, the beast obviously must come from another country. It may not affect the U.S. here. But the beast likely is from Russia. I mean, it's a bear after all. <laughs> we, we, we know what happened in Nazi Germany. We know what happened in Stalin's Russia. We know what happened in Mao's China. But that could never happen. Those are clearly evil countries. Well, we all know that's, that's right. So let me try to give you an example of, of how this can happen. And I'm not trying to create division here. This is not a political discussion, at least in terms of Republican or Democrat. But I think we have a very good contemporary example, which shows how governments can quickly become coercive and authoritarian. So I'm gonna talk about COVID for a minute. Now, whether whatever you may think or believe about the virus or the vaccine, I don't care. Whichever side of the issue you may happen to land, I don't care. What I wanna do is just take a step back and look at the underlying issues and how things developed during this time. The governments of the world decided at some point that the virus was so lethal, again, not arguing for or against that position, but the governments, on a global scale, decided that this was so lethal that they effectively shut down the world. The whole world, unprecedented. And from that point on, the governments, not Republicans or Democrats, the governments at the federal, state, and local levels all started making decisions for us on our behalf. They decided what was good or bad. They decided what was right or wrong. They decided who was essential and who was not. Now, who knew that an essential part of living life as an American was having steady access to weed and alcohol but attending church was not essential the governments decided that the vaccines were a medical marvel not arguing for or against that position but once they made that decision they began to coercively force people into receiving the vaccine I mean you could lose your job if you did not comply with the government mandate. People lost jobs because the government declared that this science was more important than anything else. So their values and their morality mattered more than yours. And then rather than being able to rely on our own gifts or talents or skill sets as employees, as employers, the governments took away our livelihoods in in many, many cases. But then... They graciously and mercifully decided to gift us with free money to help out. Money that came from us in the first place. So, after causing excessive hardship for millions of people, the governments of the world stepped in to become our functional saviors. They wanted to lead us, they wanted to protect us, they wanted to save us from ourselves. And the government became in this the governments became in this instance, for all intents and purposes, omniscient and omnipotent. So in my opinion, it wasn't a coincidence that places of worship were specifically targeted. I don't think the government wanted the competition. Do you know the governor of New York even said that the vaccine was an answer to prayer? Again, not arguing. It may be. But she went on to say that it was God's will that we take this answer to prayer, and really it was the job of the state to enforce God's will. And there we have this marriage of church and state, which apparently was bad before, but now it's okay. Now on the surface it may have seemed like the right thing for governments to do, and perhaps it was. I'm not arguing that point. I'm simply stating the fact that the governments far exceeded any levels of authority that they had previously enjoyed. And by and large, everybody went along with it. And what was established was these conditions for further future abuse. The dragon's a deceiver, he's an accuser. And both of those things have been on full display over the last several years. I mean, the name calling, the hysteria that has ensued has been breathtaking. I think the COVID crisis has shown us how these conditions can develop for governments to exert extreme and oppressive authority. Even if this was not the case, it shows us how it could happen in the future. And so we're shown here what to expect. If ever, anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now in context, this, this context, this comes just after the verse about those whose names are found in the book of life. So like it or not, these verses are aimed at the church, aimed at the body of believers. This makes it pretty clear, I think, that, that persecution is going to come. It will come from the beast, um, and it's going to be more than name-calling. Frankly, the Western Church has struggled even with that. We don't like the name-calling. How many Christians, how many denominations in the last few years are abdicating their statements of faith to the woke mob? We're giving in to cultural catechism. We're giving up and giving in because we don't like being called racist or bigot or homophobe or transphobe or who knows what other phobes may appear on the horizon. And if the church is going to be prepared to give up the faith over words that hurt us, imagine what's going to happen when sticks and stones actually come our way. So the message for the saints is, here's a call for endurance. Here's a call for faith. But faith in God, faith in Jesus, not faith in faith. We're being told what is happening? We're being shown here what is going to continue to happen, and so we ought to be prepared to the, to the best we can be. We need to be prepared to withstand, to persevere, to endure, even if it means persevering unto death. Because fortunately for us, we have a better place to go. And the dragon and his beast cannot change that. Now, as unpleasant and as unsavory as the sea beast is, the power of governments, he is not the dragon's only accomplice. <clears throat> we press on. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who would dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So many things. So many things. But much like the sea beast, this is another counterfeit. We see signs here that this earth beast is the counterfeit to the Holy Spirit. There are a number of Spiritual, supernatural elements that are added to the story here. So it's a pretty clever tactic by the dragon to steer people away from truth and toward deceit. He moves them away from worshiping of God to worship of the dragon through means of misdirection. And it will come in the form of governments and false religion. We can see some of the similarities between these two characters here. The Holy Spirit, the earth beast, both again in the image of the Father. They both exercise authority from someone else. They both direct worship to their Lord, um they both pre- perform signs and wonders but the holy spirit reveals truth whereas the earth beast clouds truth with deceit and then we'll see the holy spirit applies the seal of god on the forehead whereas the earth beast tries to apply the mark of the dragon on beasts on the hand and forehead so it starts by saying that that the, the both God and the spirit, the, the, uh, the earth beast, uh, bear the image of their father, but the earth beast, it says, has horns like a lamb. I think this is, again, an intentional reference to not just a lamb, but the lamb. The intent is to deceive and to move people away from truth. So the Holy Spirit and the earth beast or the false prophet, as it's sometimes referred to, both receive and exercise authority from another. Um, the... Holy Spirit speaks truth. The false prophet speaks like the dragon, a deceiver and accuser. And they both perform signs and wonders. And we're given some examples here. And the first that we're given is the use of fire by the beast. It says the earth beast makes fire come down from heaven in front of people. So he's got witnesses. He wants everyone to know his power and his authority. And I think this is an obvious attempt to counterfeit the Holy Spirit. You may remember one of the more interesting stories from Acts chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost arrived they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues so the false prophet wants to appear as though he's the Holy Spirit and so he mimics him he copies what the Holy Spirit does We have this example here. You you remember that uh, when God led Israel through the desert, he led them, at least in part, through means of a pillar of fire. When Elijah was having his battle with the priests of Baal, he called down fire from heaven. So, this is a very intentional sign. The use of fire is used to mislead people, it's to mimic and counterfeit the power of God, to lead people astray. And it's especially effective among those who claim to believe in God, they're familiar with these signs. They don't have a real faith. And it works. The false prophet fools the world. It says he deceives those who dwell on earth. We, we've run across that term before. That's a, a, a reference to unbelievers. And the act is so convincing that the earth beast convinces people to make an image. They make an idol for the sea beast who has recovered from this wound. And this recovery is, is a godlike or a Jesus-like act. And so they all line up to create idols for for him, to worship him. At the behest of the false prophet, who's now acting like a priest. Well, then comes the kind of the counterfeit coup de grace. The final blow, as it were. The false prophet was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. I think this goes back to Psalm 115, which says, Idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. And yet here, we're told this, in in this story, this image, this, this idol is allowed to speak. I mean, a talking idol, that has to be worthy of worship, right? That's what people think. But I want us to notice that it says he is allowed to speak. Which means, at some level, God is allowing this to happen. He's allowing the sea beasts and the earth beasts to continue to expand their oppression over the earth dwellers. He allows them to continue their rebellion against God. He allows this idol to talk, what do we make of this? Why would this be? But well, we're not told explicitly what God's motives are here. I suspect that this is all part of the cycles of judgments that we've been talking about. We've we've been told through those judgments repeatedly that God continues to warn his creation of their need to repent. He introduces judgments from milder to harsher, intended as a wake-up call to, to bring awareness to an almighty God. He desires to have his people return to him, and yet they continue to reject him. You think back to Exodus, and as Moses, who was God's instrument to Pharaoh, Moses performed signs and and miracles, and various plagues came about. And the text says that Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. Over and over, he hardened his heart. He would not yield to God. And then at some point, the text says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So Pharaoh's allotted time, his allotted opportunity for repentance had come to an end. I think this has the same, the same sense to it. The earth dwellers have time and time again hardened their heart towards the things of God. They've hardened their hearts to the voice and the power of the spirit. And so now God basically allows them to buy into the counterfeit. He allows them to make their final spiritual decision. And they worship a talking idol instead of God. They worship what was created rather than the Creator. And what does the talking antichrist idol say? The image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So apparently this talking idol calls for the death of all those who refuse to worship the idol. So the picture here is the earth beast, the the false prophet, so-called because he's acting in this priestly type fashion. He or it or they or whatever manifestation this takes, it performs signs and wonders and healings, that it leads in worship directed to the sea beast which is the government so the even bigger picture is this unholy alliance between false religion and oppressive governments and how they're working together to mislead and deceive, to ultimately coerce or force worship of the dragon religion and government working together on behalf of Satan Now, I think at this point it's abundantly clear that this refers to the Roman Catholic Church teaming up with communism. (laughs) Or, here's my backup, it's the Anglican Church working with NATO. Or, could it be the prosperity gospel teachers in cahoots with the World Health Organization? Or, the European Union working with the Unification Church. Well, I'm being facetious. You got that, right? Because <laughs> I'm hoping we start to see the problem here. We have, we have this desire to, to decode and put names and faces to all of these descriptions. And the reality is that even now, we have a number of possible solutions to this particular puzzle. Which is the point. The world is already poised to move into the next phase of God's redemptive plan, but this has been true before as well. We've been through these cycles before. And I suspect that when the actual time comes when Jesus is saddling up the horse, when we're getting close, I kind of suspect the solution to the puzzle here is going to be something we didn't really have on our list of usual suspects. I mean, the collective power and and influence of the Roman Empire combined with the power and influence of the Catholic Church has fit this description on several occasions. And yet Jesus tarries. So we just don't know God's timing. We're not even entirely sure who the players are. If, If these are particular people or if they're organizations or combinations of peoples and groups, all we're given is some signs and things to watch for, but not much more. We know that the dragon begins to take more control and more authority through the work of governments and false teachers. And boy, howdy, does this fit us today. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is going to be back by Tuesday. Don't cancel your travel plans. But things are lining up as they have many other times before. So then, just to make things a little more confusing for us, Also, it, the it refers to this idol, the image of the beast, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Thanks for coming. We'll see you. (laughs) <laughs> so, the it refers to this talking idol, the image of the beast, under the control of the dragon. So ultimately, Satan is calling here for ultimate allegiance. That's his goal. So, I find this to be kind of a quick point of irony here. This, this kind of struck me going through this, that when we talk to people that we know, people that we talk to about, about God, about Jesus, you know, one of the things that people always say is, is they get real, real worked up by the fact that God just gives us an ultimatum. It's a, you know, my way or the hell way kind of thinking. And people don't like that. But we see here that the dragon does the exact same thing. He calls for complete and total allegiance. And the reason for that is because there are only two options in making this big spiritual eternal decision. It's worship God or worship Satan. It is an ultimatum. So the beast calls for allegiance... And then he calls for an identifier of some kind so we know whose side everybody's on. And of course, this has provided endless speculation. Endless, ongoing, eternal speculation. I'm not sure I have a good answer for you. I have an answer. You can do whatever you want with it. We don't have to agree on this. You can be wrong. I'm perfectly fine. So we've already been told that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. In fact, we're going to see this again in the very next verse, chapter 14, which gives us a nice contrast with where we are here. So when we choose God, when we put our faith on the salvation offered through Jesus, we are sealed, we are marked symbolically. Our name is written in the book of life, but we're marked on the forehead. We've read that several times now. So the counterfeit version is the beast wants everyone to choose, to choose him and to worship him and to receive his mark. And it says he wants everybody, small and, and great, rich and poor, slave and free, he wants everyone to turn away from God and worship him and to make it official, make it obvious to some degree. He wants everyone to be marked with his sign, it says, on the right hand or the forehead. Now I think this is likely a throwback, a kind of a mocking throwback to the Old Testament. Based on Deuteronomy six eight, which says, "You shall bind this teaching as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes." So, some ancient Israelites, some now modern Orthodox Jews, continue this practice. They wore phylacteries on their arms and their foreheads. Small these small boxes you see on the forehead, and it contains sections of scripture. They wore them during prayer on their arm and on their forehead. And this was to symbolize for them the condition of their heart, that they were keeping the words of the Lord close, front of mind. So the beast continues his counterfeit by mimicking this old Jewish custom, I think. The big question is, the one which everyone has everyone all Twitterpated and worked up, is this a literal, physical mark that's being required? Is everyone who follows Satan going to have to get a 666 tattoo. I mean, it makes sense because tattoos are evil, we all know. So 666 tattoo would be even more evil. Or, since the sealing of the spirit seems to be symbolic, does that mean the mark of the beast will be symbolic also? Now, in my view, in my opinion, I think it's thematically and scripturally consistent to suggest that it is going to be a symbolic mark. Since the sealing from the Holy Spirit is symbolic, is is spiritual, it's equivalent to having our name written in the book of life, then I believe the mark of the beast is probably also symbolic, which is equivalent to not having our name written in the book of life. So it basically identifies us as Team Jesus or Team Dragon. And then we get to the idea of the placement of the mark. And I think that just kind of adds to my understanding of this. We know that scripture calls us to meditate on the Lord day and night. That's part of why those, those phylacteries were on the forehead. We are to take every thought captive. Symbolized by wearing this scripture on the forehead. By being symbolically sealed on the forehead. So in like but counterfeit manner, we're told that the dragon is going to call on his followers to receive his mark, which means he wants them to meditate on him day and night. He wants to control their every thought. He wants to control their heart, mind, and actions. So the mark on the hand, I think, suggests or or symbolizes our actions, the work of our hands. That's going to reveal our true spiritual allegiance. We can say whatever we want. We can say we believe in whatever we want to say, but what do our actions show? Scripture says that we'll be known as Christ followers by our fruit, I think the same is true for Christ deniers. So in essence, I think what's being shown here is that there's going to come a time when there are going to be obvious distinctions, probably in personal behavior, which will highlight who we worship, who our allegiance is to. It's going to be based on our our lifestyles, based on our choices, based on our behaviors. Who we worship is going to be obvious for all to see. If you just think back over the last couple of years, the the dramatic rise uh, in protests we've seen. Again, whether we disagree or agree with the concept, the principle, but there have been, you know, the BLM protests, the defunding police, the Dodd decision just in the last month or so, people who are literally choosing sides and making their allegiance known. Our actions are declaring our allegiance to a side or to a cause. Whether we worship Jesus or whether we worship the beast, I think it's going to be so obvious it will be as though we're wearing a tattoo on our forehead. And that allegiance, the side we choose, is going to impact our livelihood. You know, again, I think we got close to this, this kind of idea of a mark with vaccinations. Again, not arguing for or against them, but there was a period of time where we were talking about in this country, if you didn't have a vaccination card, you couldn't travel. You couldn't leave your house. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't go to the store. It's not that far outside of the realm of possibility now to suggest that this might be the case. By the way, the vaccine was not the mark of the beast. Just want to be sure everybody, we're all clear on that. But it does help us see how something like this can come about. But then we get to the actual number itself. It's just the topic alone of thousands of books and podcasts and conspiracy theories and YouTube videos and and probably sleepless nights and some hand-wringing. I I, I don't know. And and I love this idea that the, the great irony here is that we have so many explanations for this. So many people who've got this figured out. So many interpretations. So many groundbreaking insights which can't all be right, obviously. And so the irony is we have all of these grand ideas over a verse that starts with this calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom, and then we've lost our collective minds over what's come, what has come next. So I'm going to try to make this short and sweet. You can judge how wise it is. Revelation is a book of visions and symbols. If we take it all literally, as has not been our approach, we add layers and layers and layers of difficulty. Which ultimately makes this book harder to understand, which I don't believe was the Lord's intent. So if, as we have suggested, the, the sealing of the spirit is symbolic and it indicates that our name is written in the book of life, then it follows also that the mark of the beast is symbolic, which means the names are not written in the book of life, in which case maybe this physical 666 is also symbolic. So here's a fairly simple explanation. Right or wrong, agree or disagree, I don't care. Here's one way of thinking about it. We know that in Scripture, seven is the number of completeness or fullness, right? On the handy chart we gave you some months back, on the seventh day God rested, creation was complete. This, this book of Revelation starts off with seven letters to the churches, representing the full church throughout the age. So seven represents completeness. Six represents less than complete. It represents the number of humanity, which means we're short of perfection. Man was created on day six. Six. We're the most like God. We're created in his image, but we are not God. We are imperfect. So six is the number of imperfect humanity. Or man. This says it's the number of a man. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we also know that repetition is common in Scripture. Um, It's often used as a superlative. We sang this in one of the songs this morning. Holy, holy, holy. Three times highlights God's absolute holiness. So might it not be the case that three sixes are used to highlight man's perfect imperfectness? Man's complete unholiness? And that would be especially true for the dragon and and the beast. But it's true for all humans who align themselves with the enemy. And remember, it's the job of of, of the, the devil to deceive and capture all of humanity. So six, six, six... May well represent the fact that the majority of humanity is going to follow the beast. There's a couple options to choose from there. Now, complicating things further, there is a translation choice that's made here in, in, in the text. The phrase that's translated here as the number of a man could also be translated, and in other translations occurs as the number of men or the number of humanity which means that rather than the number of a man, 666 is the number of humanity. It makes it far less specific. It doesn't have to be a man. So instead of spending all of our time trying to put a specific name to a specific person who might or might not be a real antichrist, say, a word that's never used in the book of Revelation, instead of using some arcane name and math trick like Gematria, where we assign numerical values to letters, and then we try to combine names and figure out who 666 refers to. Perhaps we should rely on wisdom and try to see this verse in context. In the big picture, the context is that Satan is not God. He just wants to be. His only goal is to try and be like God by usurping God's kingdom, by deceiving people into worshiping him rather than God, and he does this through means of oppressive governments and false teachers. And what better method of false teacher than to take us into the weeds on 666 and we lose sight of the fact that we what we should be talking about in the first place. So Satan's going to use men and women, their number being six. He's going to use men and women in and throughout their positions of government. He's going to use men and women uh, as false teachers. Satan is using God's creation against him. And this call for wisdom takes us right back to verse 9 and 10. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. There's our wisdom. We have to endure, and we have to be solid in our faith. Don't put your faith in governments, which are comprised of men, most of whom are going to reject God when given the chance. I mean, they may seem like they're on your side. They might even really help from time to time. But what we see here is that there's going to be a time that will come when lines are drawn and sides are chosen. And more often than not, most governments, most men, Will rely on their own power and authority and be opposed to God. The government will not save you from an eternity in hell. Don't get me wrong here. Don't read into this. I'm not saying, as Christ followers, we should hate the government or we should be anti government. As Christ followers, we're called to be good citizens. So we should vote. We should run for office. We should be politically aware. We should seek to bring positive change to our culture, however, we are enabled and gifted. But that change should be based on the morality and values and truth that we find in God's Word. But we should always go at it with the understanding that this is a spiritual battle. We're going to lose some battles. We will win the war, but we're going to lose battles. And neither are we to put faith in religions or denominations or teachers who promise whatever, acceptance and, and love, but based on your terms and your definitions and your understanding. How you think Jesus would do it. We can't accept part of his teachings and reject another part of it. So, teachers who say things like, oh, Jesus didn't really say, or God didn't really say, who does that sound like? The serpent the deceiver it is true that God accepts us as we are he he accepts us regardless of our sins and our behaviors and and the multitudes of our sins and behaviors but acceptance is not approval so when God accepts us as we are he then calls us to move out of our sin in all of its many forms he calls us to become more Christ-like he calls us to become holy for he is holy and we do that by following his words and his commands, not rewriting them as we want them to be. When we say, when people say, well, my God would never do thus and so, whatever is culturally expedient at the moment, what we're doing is remaking God in our image. We want him to be like us. And we're rejecting his call to transform ourselves into being like him. We followed a false teacher. Now, I'm not convinced that there is or will be a singular Antichrist, capital A. I think we've got way too many little Antichrists running around being really, really effective right now. So here's the call for wisdom. Endure the hardship. Endure the persecution that will come with your allegiance to Christ. And don't just maintain a faith, but make sure you have faith in the God of the Bible. Make sure you have faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Make sure you've accepted Jesus' gift of salvation and that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And continue to grow in your faith and endure. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this record that you have left for us. And I know this was a lot to consider today, there is a lot to work through. But I don't want us to get caught up in the weeds. I want us to continue to see this story as, as it is being revealed, that just as there is a God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, there is a Satan, there is a Antichrist Earth Beast, there are, or Sea Beast, there is a false prophet Earth Beast, and they're all designed to work against the power of the Trinity. Lord, I pray that as we go through our life, we see where those battles come into our, our own life. We see where those those lines are drawn, and we continue to, to choose allegiance to God. We choose to continue to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And as we encounter others who are still struggling, who have made no commitment to faith of any kind, or who just claim to have a faith, Lord, I pray that you give us courage. I pray that you give us wisdom to know how to uh, interact with people that we see around us. We see all these signs around us. This we, we may well be close to the end. All we know for sure is we're closer than we've ever been. But we are still called to live lives of, of uh, worthiness, to, to live lives according to the calling you've placed on us, and to share what we know with others. So continue to equip us, encourage us to speak to others, to share the love of Jesus with others, and help us continue to stand fast. stand fast in our own faith. We thank you for your love for us, for what you have revealed to us, for giving us these warnings to help us be prepared for what we are going to see. We thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.